Anyway, back we go here to, to this look of Jacob in Genesis 28. Great look at a very relatable patriarch, the most relatable of all patriarchs. Why am I repeating myself? Because I'll probably edit this and start it over at just that point right there. Back, back we go, though, uh, to, to Genesis 28. Now, we find him right after one of the lowest points in his life. He is now basically on the run. Esau has got him in his sights. Esau has a determination to kill him, perhaps after the death of Isaac, but he does have that kind of malice in his heart. Not that that kind of malice in your heart is ever excusable, but if it's at all slightly understandable, getting to know Jacob as we have so far, it becomes slightly understandable why someone could be so aroused against another person based on all of the conniving, manipulation, cheating that has gone on from Jacob. And here's the amazing part. Israel reads this with the great encouragement of, this is our origin story. How glorious. Uh, okay, but this is our origin story, nonetheless. And even as we, Israel, and, and we, the, 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 the people of God today, can end up in places that are not so wonderful... God is still with him. And so Israel could take heart. God is perhaps still with us. And, and likewise for us too, as we go down more crooked paths than straight ones to recognize you've got a God who is still determined to be with you. And so here we go in chapter 28, starting in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba. That's the southernmost portion of Canaan or the promised land. And he set out for Haran. Haran is actually all the way back where Laban lives. That's, that's where the family's from originally. And as he makes his way back, he's going to be going through a lot of different lands and a lot of different cultures. That dispersion from Ur to Haran occurred right after the Tower of Babel that we read about back in Genesis chapter 11. And so even those sites that you would have seen at the Tower of Babel, the ziggurats, these attempts to have a man-made stairway up to heaven itself, would have been what Jacob is about to encounter. And just before he encounters that, in, in all of the man-made ways, this is the story, very poignant that this is the case, this is the story that then is set out. Verse 11, when he reached a certain place, and by saying a certain place, it is not acting as though this is a special place. It's, it's actually talking of a, of a place that is rather nondescript. Although Abraham was here earlier, and when Abraham was here, he also had a, an encounter with God. But he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Whenever you have darkness or night coming upon a biblical scene, know that it is often an ominous idea, and that it is trying to create an atmosphere for us to be able to appreciate what's about to go down in this story. Because the sun had truly set in many different ways on Jacob's life. Even though he perhaps could have been rather encouraged about the fact that he had manipulated his brother, he now had the birthright, he now had the blessing, he had actually, in, in a self-determined, self-made man sort of a way, had cheated his way into everything that he ever wanted, but now he finds himself alone, broke, busted, on the run, afraid, and exiled. As even Isaac has said, you know what, time for you to go. And everything that he had wanted is now gone. 
The one woman, the one person on earth that loved him, Rebecca, he will never see again before she dies. This is his place. This is his status by himself. And by the way, as we remember, Jacob, he was not the outdoorsy type of fellow here. Uh, he is the homebody, kitchen dwelling, uh, you know, kind of tent, tent loving mama's boy that enjoyed being as close to the the apron strings of Rebecca as possible as they would kind of cook together in the kitchen and enjoy whatever it is that they would do at that time. So it's that type of a man that is now in the wilderness without any sort of, of equipment or sustenance or tents or anything. All he's got is the ground below him and a rock. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Bum, 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 bum. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. That's a very vivid picture that you've got nothing, so you put a stone under your head to sleep. By the way, this phrase is used about two or three other times in the Old Testament, and it's not translated in those places as taking the stone and putting it under your head to sleep. I would even think, if I'm you know, on a, a, a desert scene like this, I don't think I would find it more comfortable to have a rock under my head. Even a really smooth rock, I don't think would be actually beneficial in this case. Uh, and all of the other places where this is translated, and it may just be because of tradition that it ends up this way in the NIV and other translations, but the other two or three places, including 1 Samuel, where it is translated, it says that he had taken rocks and put them around his head. Perhaps more of a protective type idea that was going on here. He had no other shelter, so perhaps just a few rocks around his head before he goes to sleep, whichever way. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth. Many have endeavored to translate this in different ways. Is it Jacob's ladder? Is it a stairway? The idea is that it's something massive. And so the idea of ladder is probably not in view. Something much more of a grand staircase and a massive one that extends from earth into the far distance, into the heavens themselves. Thus is the vision in his dream. With its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. Now, this is also quite the contentious translation too, so let me stop for a moment, because many Hebrew scholars actually contend that a better idea here, and most of the footnotes in every translation always include this, because it is such a strong idea, is that not above it, but there beside him, there beside Jacob, as if he has come alongside Jacob in order to have him behold what it is that he's wanting to show to Jacob. And so there beside Jacob stood the Lord. A very intimate idea, the way that it's listed that way. And the Lord said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. By the way, there is no wordplay in the original language about lying, lying, even though in English it works rather well. Uh, matter of fact, the parallel passage to this, when, when Abraham is in Bethel, it's word for word the same thing, but he says, in, in, to, to Abraham, he says, uh, I, uh, uh, I will give you and your descendants 
the land which you seek. That's the way he says it to Abraham. But to Isaac, he says, I will give you the land in which you are lying. If Jacob means liar, right? And Jacob has been lying all, all throughout this narrative about him, by the way. Anyway, it's kind of an interesting pun in English, but it has nothing to do with the original text. So, verse 14. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. At this point now, all the massive promises of Genesis 13 are being reiterated to Jacob. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and the east. To the north and to the south, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you. This is now added. And will watch over you wherever you go. Matter of fact, first time anyone has heard this from the Lord. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And so now it finally comes to Jacob. What had come to Abraham in an intimate encounter with the Lord. Energizing, activating the very faith of Abraham to be able to sustain and persevere, to be patient, to hold on to the Lord. The very faith that was brought to Isaac as Isaac had a personal encounter with the Lord in Genesis 26. In the land of Rehoboth, in the place where God delivered him from Abimelech, where he gave him water by the well. He then reiterated to Isaac as well. Now Jacob, flat out broke, busted and bad in every sense of the word. And in the middle of the night with nothing all around for him but some stones. He is, is now going to go from being at the absolute bottom of his life to having an encounter with the Lord. At the absolute most disgraceful point of his life where his cheating has piled on top of his cheating in order for him to end up in this very place. How amazing is our God that it's at this bottom place in Jacob's life that he now so tenderly, intimately, and confidently, uh, giving confidence to Jacob, comes to Jacob. Verse 16. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid. As anyone who has an encounter with the Lord has been and ought to be. When Isaiah has an encounter with the Lord in Isaiah 6, he's like, Humana, humana, humana. Oh, I'm a man with unclean lips. I'm before holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. I'm ruined. I'm dead. What, what is to become of me? Any of us, when we come in close proximity with the unfiltered, raw holiness of God, would all end up in the exact same place. We would suddenly become keenly aware of how defiled and how repulsive we are in all that we try to accomplish in our flesh. The great things that we think that we do, how they smack of pride, the very thing that made the devil the devil. All of that would become so clear in our mind's eye. And so it is to all of the prophets. So it was to Moses. So it is now to Jacob. And he's got plenty of material to help him to realize why it is that he should be afraid. Be very afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? Now, he doesn't say awesome like we say awesome. Like we say awesome, awesome, awesome all the time. Awesome. 
But awesome is actually used in this place in its proper meaning. In the King James, for example, it doesn't say how awesome is this place, but same word, of course, that they're translating. But there it's translated, how dreadful is this place? There is a, a, a dread that would wash over us that we would feel in the depths of our soul if we were to come into a place where holiness is revealed. It would, it would be the fire on Mount Sinai. It would be a mountain shaking. It would be the pillars of the temple of Isaiah 6 that are shuddering just at the voice of the Lord. And Jacob is given some sort of a view of this and at the end says, how awesome, how filled with awe, dread is this place. He says so with fear. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar, poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel, Beit El, house of God, uh, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with us, and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then, this is an odd one for him to say, because he's making an if-then statement to God. Even though God has already affirmed and promised to him with surely's and with you's until the end, even though God has already laid it down, he is still putting before God, all right, if, if I see this work out, then, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe give a little something, something back your way. If all of this happens, everything that you said, plus he must be hungry and probably threadbare because he says, okay, if I get some food, if I get some clothes, if all of this goes down the way you say, God, then, then you'll be my God. And this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. And, and so we have this response from Jacob. A little bit lacking, but nonetheless, a, a, a real response from Jacob. Maybe one of the first times that we see him with some sort of eagerness towards unbridled righteousness. It may take more convincing on God's part, but it seems as though God is working on Jacob to get him to that very place. But let's talk about a couple angles to be able to understand the magnitude of why this is such an enduring story and why it's one that continues to captivate men and women's attention for such a, a long, long uh, eons of time. My first point is, man builds up. As I mentioned, we encounter Jacob at a point where he is Mr. Self-Made Man. The problem with being a self-made man is that you begin to worship your Creator. And all of it becomes twisted. Think about that. And here we see in Jacob a man at the bottom. Maybe you can relate in different ways that you've tried to build yourself up. Build yourself up even to the Lord. Even try to engage in some sort of religion. And we, we often use the word religion in a disparaging context. But the word itself is not necessarily a negative word. Religion 
just simply means, it's kind of an old English and, and from uh, old French, just simply means a rejoining of man to God. A rejoining of the natural with the supernatural. And, and so he goes about this religion or this rejoining by trying to do it of his own strength. And as he does so, he secures a blessing, he secures advantage, he secures success in his own mind, all thanks to his own wily coyote abilities that he has exhibited so far. And, but yet, look where it's gotten him. He is now a man disgraced. He is a man with the, the taint of shame that now leaves an odor upon him. All he has left is himself and his own thoughts. And probably as he contemplates his own thoughts, all alone, he realizes the depth of the bankruptcy of his character. And it's at this place of brokenness where God is eager to come meet anyone. And I think about my, my own efforts to try to figure out God in my life. And, and there were many, and, and there were many times where I just thought about being an actualized man, a transcendent man, that I was going to march my way up Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs and come to that place of, of actualization. And, and, and so many things I thought were going just right, and I was curating a life just the way that I had fashioned, and all of my five and ten year plans were coming together, all of the arc of what I wanted to do in my but kind of executive career all coming together and even thinking like, well, then how can I even expand beyond this and be, you know, being engaged in things like neuro, neuro associative conditioning, which later be called, became called uh, neuro linguistic programming, NLP, uh, also getting involved in all sorts of self actualization workshops and schemes of different ways uh, to, to become like this, this person that I thought would finally be a man that has arrived. And every single time when I had a quiet moment, I reflected on any and all of those things and I still came away even more empty. Didn't exactly know perhaps what it was. Thought I had as many friends as anybody I knew. Achievement beyond other people that I knew. Nuclear family. Uh, the, the, the Volvo, the company car, the big brick house in the suburbs, all of, all of that. And, and yet there was a massive emptiness that began to finally rear its ugly head for me to be able to see. And it's as though I had to like achieve so much to realize if that's all there is, well then, as the song says, let's just keep dancing. Uh, if that's all there is. But there wasn't just that. That's the beauty of it. That's not all there is. And we understand that. That's why we're together here on a Sunday morning worshiping Jesus. It's not all there is. But that part of it, even the way that I tried to bring Jesus into my life, I brought Jesus into my life not for him. He was not the end. He was the means. In other words, I wanted Jesus in my life, sadly, because then I would be viewed as a better rounded man. With Jesus in my life, I'd be viewed as a man of greater character. With Jesus in my life, that would be the thing that would make our family all the more secure and happy and fuzzy and warm. With Jesus in my life, then I would be viewed so much more positively. Now, I didn't ever say it that way. 
I never would say it that way, but I knew deep down that that's really what it was. I wanted Jesus, not for who he was. I was never so enthralled with Jesus for who he was, so eager to rearrange my life, so eager to give up any of those things that I just listed before as as such wondrous accomplishments to my conceited, vain mind. I wasn't ready to give up any of that. I wanted all of that to be all the more augmented by Jesus. And it's a, it's a sad way to go if, if that's the way that you're ever going to come to encounter the Lord. And I ended up in just darkness and despair, realizing that I am nothing. I am empty. I am void of character. I, all that I do is self-serving. All that I am is a, a, a self-made righteousness. I am a sham. And, and it was just at that moment that God put a man who had real substance in my life. A man with the Holy Spirit dwelling within him. A man with confidence. A man that served the Lord. He didn't need to come to me, but he did. God didn't need to rearrange my life when I was so repugnant, repulsive, such a stench in his nostrils, but he did. That's the amazing thing about our God is that no matter how much we try to build this up in and of ourselves, wow, what it is that that God does for us. And as I mentioned, Jacob is about to head up the road to Haran. And as he's about to go there, he, he first will have the recognition that this is the house of God in Bethel, in, in Bethel. But then he also says, this is the gate of heaven. That's an, a pregnant phrase there. That, that's freighted with meaning. Meaning that the, the phrase gate of heaven is actually the word in, that, in the ancient language for Babylon. And that's about where he's about to go. He's going to Babylon. And what is there in Babylon? What is there in Babel that we saw before Abraham is chosen from all of God's people? Before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, before all of that, all there was was a bunch of people trying to build their way to God. And what were they doing? They were making a ziggurat. A ziggurat is is an ancient, massive construction, which is actually hollow on the inside. When we excavate any that are in uh, any sort of uh, shape to be excavated, the inside is rubble. The inside is it, it's just a facade. All they want is the outside because it is a stairway, a stairway by, by which men believe that they can ascend to God, that they in and of themselves can pull themselves up by their own sandal straps and make their way to God. Ziggurats, by the way, when they're excavated today, are often found right next to holy places or temples. And it was right next to the temple that the ziggurat existed. You would worship your respective God, not respectful God, but your respective false nasty God. And next to that, build a ziggurat to to make your way up. And thus there were the steps to God. And there are a lot of approaches today that are man-made that are steps to God. Whatever you want to look at that as. If if you want to look at the five pillars of Islam, those are man-made steps. To God, and it's false, patently false way that God wants men to get to Him. If you want to look at the eightfold enlightened path of, of, of Hinduism or Buddhism, that is an empty promise of man trying to 
sell a bill of goods to men of this is how you're going to achieve anatma enlightenment to come to a wondrous place with God. Absolutely false. And it is not the case. You pick any means by which man tries to make their ascent to God and it will be torn down just as the Tower of Babel was by God, by the emptiness that will in the end be revealed in life. But if man does not build himself up to God, it must mean then that God intervenes for us. And it's what we see in this story. And it's what we see at such a poignant time in Jacob's life. Think of the low point of his life. Think of the low point in your own life. Think of what you may be facing right now. Maybe you've even been walking with Christ for a while. And you've come to a place where you even wonder, can I keep this up? Can I keep up the charade? I've got stuff that's going on that's not really been revealed. I've got stuff that's going on that is not in alignment with God. I'm trying to manage it all. I'm trying in my own efforts to keep the religion, the rejoining of me and God with all of my different plans and schemes to be able to do all of this. And perhaps you're coming to a place where you realize, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep trying to have this empty ziggurat that's empty on the inside that looks like it's my connection to God. That's not the gate to heaven. That is not the way. And it will collapse on itself like a house of cards. That's a scary place if you're running down that right now. If there is not a sincerity welcoming the grace of God, letting Him deal thoroughly with you, letting you be whole, letting you be solid rather than a facade, if that's not where you want to go, then you're going to end up empty and you're going to end up regretting the greatest intervention that God has ever wanted to do in your life. Do not let that be the case. Not for another hour, not for another day. Let no sleep come to your eyes. No sleep come to your eyes. Remaining an empty cigarette. Remaining a, a, a hollow vessel version of one that's trying to rejoin themselves to God. The Holy Spirit is sweeping through. You know this is the case. Wanting not that to happen in your life. But instead, God comes to us at these moments if we're ready to be real. If we're ready to be sincere, without guile. If we're ready to stop having it both ways. Like, yes, I do want God to come to me, but I still want to be the external facade. I, I still want to manage my persona. I, I still want to have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. And as a matter of fact, you can't have it any other way than Jesus' way. But here's the beautiful part. You see, at just the right time, when we too were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for you for this moment with your Bible open or your smartphone turned to a Bible. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified, made righteous, made whole, made solid by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we were God, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life, through Jesus? And so if it's not building ourselves up, if it's not pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, then what is it? It's God coming down. And it's only in Christianity do we see God coming down. God intervening, God humbling himself, God emptying himself, God coming to us. And at this moment of darkness in Jacob's life, God gives him a dream that changes everything. God gives him a vision and an insight and an open door into understanding heaven, into understanding him. And with that, everything, everything is rearranged in Jacob's life. That even he, despicable him, even me, despicable me, God would arrange to be able to show me himself. Not in some anemic, self-righteous, manage-your-own-image way, but in a way where, all right, now finally, now finally you're ready to get real. Now finally you're able to reveal how hollow the inside is, let me now make you whole. And so what Jacob sees is not a ladder that someone makes from the ground on up. But what he sees is the descent in a dream of a massive stairway, a staircase, grand as it is, that comes down and rests upon the earth. None other than a gate to heaven, a portal by which angels are coming and going. And it's, it's not like a parade of angels that come down, come up, come down, come up. That's not what is in view here, as though the angels had a Fitbit and they're trying to get their steps in with elevation. No, it, it is angels being dispatched from God in this spiritual warfare, in this dimension. It is God is giving Jacob a small peek into the bigness that you think is your life is actually laughingly minuscule. The kingdom of God transcends all of this to such a massive degree that you can't even begin to comprehend it, but I'll let you have a peek at it. And the trillions of angels, as described in Revelation, the trillions of angels are greater than those who are against us, <clears throat> Elisha will say to his servant. And that God dispatching his angels, Hebrews says they are ministering spirits sent to serve us. God sending ministering angels off into this dimension to do the work that they need to do. Off they go. And then they're recalled as well to the throne of God to come back and to report all that is going on. It is a beautiful sight of God intervening for the sake of man. But all along the way, the vision is given not with God sitting detached, but with God standing alongside Jacob saying, Jacob, I'm here. I'm with you. Look at what this is. Look at the degree to which I am able to serve you and help you and, and achieve 
all that I need to achieve through you. I've got a plan, Jacob. And you know what the plan is? We're going to bless every nation on earth. All peoples are going to be blessed. Me and you, Jacob, we're going to do this thing. I know you think that you're not worthy, but guess what? I'm making you worthy. There is a way that this is all going to happen, and the steps are not the way to get there. As a matter of fact, there's a very interesting phrase by Jesus in John 1, where he refers to this very site. And he's talking to Nathaniel, soon to be one of his disciples. Nathaniel, interestingly, says about Jesus when he hears about him, Nazareth, anything good come from Nazareth? Just like this stairway in the middle of nowhere, just in some place. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip, who is having this conversation with Nathaniel, doesn't have much to say, but has actually a great idea. Why don't you just come and see? you got a lot to say. How about you just come and see? And so, Jesus goes, and, and Nathaniel sees Jesus, heads on over to him, and you know what Jesus says to him? He stops him in his tracks. And as he sees Nathaniel coming, he says, Now here, here is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Jesus is actually quoting a psalm. Psalm 32, as a matter of fact, that Jesus is quoting at this point. And perhaps Nathaniel was under a fig tree, a place where people of God would often sit and contemplate and meditate, perhaps on a psalm. Perhaps he was singing the psalm to himself. It was a psalm, by the way, about confession. It was a psalm about laying out your sins before the Lord, before all, rather than trying to fake it, but to be real. And as Nathaniel approaches Jesus, Jesus says, Aha! Look what we got here. A true Israelite in whom there is no hollowness, but in whom there is nothing false. You're not a false front. You're not an empty vessel. Good to meet you, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel said, Ah, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree, even before Philip called you. Then Nathaniel declared, uh, wow, Rabbi, um, you're the son of God. You're, you're, you're the king of Israel. He was the most skeptical, by the way. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You know what? You're going to see even greater things than that. Nathaniel wondering, what's, what is it? What's going to be greater than that? You just, you just saw me under the fig tree without being in the area. You knew what I was reading. You, you know what's going on inside of me. You know I've been confessing. You know I'm trying to get real. You know all of that. And then Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven itself open and the angels of God ascending and descending. Not on a stairway, but he says ascending and descending on me, Jesus says. I'm the Son of Man. I am that connection. I am what has come down from the gate of heaven. I am what makes this connection. I am the one, although I had all privilege, Philippians 2, that I emptied myself. Why did I empty myself? So that I could come down and connect you to God. And I do so to you, Nathaniel, at the very moment that you get real, you get raw, and you confess, and you stop trying to fake it. And to Jacob, likewise, Jesus comes to Jacob, 
The stairway comes to Jacob at the moment that he finally recognizes the depth of his despair. And at that bottom is when God is eager to come to us. That's what God is eager to do for every one of you here. Stop trying to act as though you don't need God. Because it's basically saying that you don't want him. Stop trying to act as though you have no sin. Because then you're saying, I don't need grace. Stop trying to act as though you got it all together. Because that's basically saying, I don't need Jesus. But here he is. Emptying himself to be your conduit. To be your conduit into the glory. That is there. Expansive and beyond our imagination. All of that waits for us. Jesus is the one who says, I am the gate in John 10. I've always wondered why. You're talking about a shepherd. You're talking about a gate. You're talking about a lot of things. A watchman. Why the gate? I think because it's part of this. He's the gate. You know what else Jesus says? I am the way. I am the truth and the life. And then this is the part that not a lot of people like. But if he didn't say it, God wouldn't make sense. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Very definitive. One way. And then here's what he says. No one, no one gets to the Father except through me. You're not going to get to the Father by faking Christianity right now. You're not going to get to the Father by faking your righteousness. You're not going to get to the Father by concealing your sinfulness. You're only going to get to the Father through Jesus. And by the way, you're not going to get to the Father through Islam, through Buddha, through Hindu, through Shinto, through anything else, not through Judaism, not through any of those are you going to get to the Father. Am I saying that because I just want to provoke you? No, I'm saying that because that's what Jesus says here. And, and I'm also saying that because if that's not the case, then God is a monster. An absolute horror. Because what father, as we contemplate this on Father's Day, would allow his son to be shamed, stripped, scourged, tortured, dishonored, filled with defiling sin from all of us, hung on a cross, to public spectacle and shame, and finally executed in a way that has a billboard over it saying, I'm a curse. What father would allow that if there were any other way? What father would allow that if the eightfold path of enlightenment is how you really get to the top of the ladder? What father would allow that if the five pillars of Islam make any progress towards the top of the ladder. They don't. They don't and they can't. Because if they did, Jesus never would have died on a cross. The Father would have never allowed His Son a death on the cross. Never would have allowed it. A good God would never allow that for His one and only Son, whom He loves, with whom He is well pleased. And the fact that Jesus has done all of this so that we can have integrity, so that we can have wholeness, that we don't have to be shallow, that we can be connected, that we can have fulfillment. The fact that he does all of this and anybody would be take 
umbrage or have an affront to him saying, and by the way, this is the only way you get to God. Well, shut my mouth. I guess so. What else makes sense? Who would go through all of that? Make it as clear as possible. Make it as loving as possible. Make it as overwhelmingly beautiful as possible. Attach all of the promises to that if that's not the way. And is that not his prerogative? Having done all of that to say, oh, and by the way, in case any of you are wondering how, what all of that was for, it's, it's, it's for you to be connected to God. All that other kind of, you know, absolute uh, garbage that, that is being peddled in any other corner, saying that that's the way to God, eh, false, demonic, lies, worse, perhaps. There is one beautiful way, one absolute beautiful way, and Jesus... Jesus is that connection. Jesus is that portal. Jesus comes down and reaches you at your low point and embraces you. And he doesn't just do that to make you whole, but also to make you significant. Just as God makes Jacob significant. And as a closing charge, recognize what God says to Jacob. I am with you. Why? Because all peoples are going to be blessed through you. I am with you. I'm watching over you, Jacob. Wherever you go, I got you. I will bring you back to this land. And I'm not going to leave you until I have done everything that I have promised. The same Jesus comes to you. Not only takes you out of your emptiness. Out of your, your facade of, of farce. But now has you by your side. He's got you. He's got you. And he's saying, you know what? And now, Jamie, now, Zach, now, Elaine, here's the deal. We're doing this together. You know why? You know why I came and got you besides the fact that I love you? Because now you got some stuff to do. You're going to go bless all people. You're going to let them know about this. You're my plan. Matter of fact, you're plan A. I don't have a plan B. This is, this is plan A. Is that I got you. I got you to the end. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The very words that God says, really Jesus says to Jacob, Jesus says to us as well. I am with you to the end of the age. I got you. Let's go do some work. Now that you get it, now that you know, now that you're part of this, let's go make a massive difference. Let's go bless all the peoples of the earth. I'm with you. They're going to do stuff. They're going to try stuff. Matter of fact, they did. To Paul, to others, again and again. And, and, and even though it was a rough road, it was an exciting road. And even though it's a roller coaster of travail, it's exciting when you know that that roller coaster is engineered really well to stay on the track. Because it's Jesus who's with you on the ups and the downs and the twists. It's Jesus who now makes your life exciting. It's Jesus who now makes your life significant. Amen. You're never to be among those cold and timid souls who don't know your reason for being. You know your reason for being. Jesus came down. Jesus connected you. Jesus has lifted you up from the ground and that dark place. He has stood you on your feet. He is next to you as well. He's showing you the land. He's showing you the kingdom of God. And now he says to you, you and me, let's go do some blessing. Yeah. Amen.